from South Carolina Public Radio. This is the South Carolina Lead. I'm your host, Gavin Jackson, and this episode was recorded on September 13th, 2023 from South Carolina Public Radio Studios here in Columbia. Just so you know, some of the information on this podcast may have changed by the time you've heard it. It's been nearly a month since the South Carolina Supreme Court ruled that the six-week so-called fetal heartbeat abortion ban law signed by Governor Henry McMaster in May was ruled constitutional. A previous and similar version of this law was ruled unconstitutional by a vote of 3-2 in January by the High Court, which included now-retired Justice Kay Hearn. Since then, Hearn was replaced by Appeals Court Judge Gary Hill, making the High Court the only all-male court in the nation, a first for the state in 35 years. In May, the court heard oral arguments from lawyers representing Planned Parenthood South Atlantic and the Greenville Women's Clinic, who challenged the state's attorneys over the law. Reporters with South Carolina Public Radio and us here at the South Carolina Lead have covered this issue extensively from inside and outside of the statehouse, including Scott Morgan, who spoke with four women who had abortions. The following is a 23-minute piece by Scott, and we'll talk with him for a bit afterward in lieu of a wind-down. You know what's missing from the conversation about abortion? What's missing out of the conversation is the individual humanity of whatever the situation is. How do you bridge the gap and how do we team together? How do we as a collective society remedy the situation? Ruminate on that for just another moment, please. How do we bridge the gap? How do we team together? How do we as a society remedy a situation that divides us so sharply? Well, respectful conversation in place of reductive melodrama is a start. Without statistics, without propaganda, without medical terminology, and certainly without political posturing. So we're going to have a conversation with four women who know what abortion means more than most because they've had one. Two have long regretted their decisions, two have not regretted a thing. And a word of caution, this is going to get intense at times, but we are going to end on common ground. This is Miss Lynn, no other name given. It was 1978 at the time I was engaged to be married and my life had no room for anybody else in it. Lynn was 22 at the time and not wanting to be responsible to anyone or anything beyond her own desires. In 1978, you had the hippie thing going on. You had the drug culture that was exciting and it was painted as a pretty picture. And I had enough sense to know in my mind that at that time, I wasn't ready to be responsible. I didn't want to be responsible because I wanted to engage in what I thought was going to be a good, free life. Pregnant at her wedding, she had already decided she wouldn't be a mother by her first anniversary. We were in Florida, and we were in a hotel, knowing when I come back from my honeymoon, I had already made the appointment. And so, with the agreement of her new husband, Lynn had her pregnancy terminated. For the next 38 years, she distanced herself from that decision, separating herself into what she calls two people, even before she had the abortion. And I'll never forget standing in front of a mirror in the hotel and looking at my midsection and wondering, is this the right thing to do? And then immediately that dissociation comes up, separate myself from the situation, and move forward. Miss Lynn's is a quiet house curled up in a rural corner of South Carolina where forest insects and the occasional rooster vie to be the louder voice. It's a lovely country home with big sunny rooms and a large loyal dog you might hear tiptoeing around on the hardwood floor. But there's nothing here that would even suggest that children have ever been so much as visitors in this home. Miss Lynn's guilt wouldn't allow them. 
when I met my second husband here, Charlie, one of the first things I told him is, I never want children. This is the effect that the abortion had on me. I didn't want to be around anything that had to do with children. I paid somebody to murder my child. Until I got to that place and was able to face that, I had to live in disassociation. I had to be separated from the woman that laid on that table. 38 years after the abortion, it all caught up to her at a Christmas party her church threw. One year, unbeknownst to me, they were gonna have a pro-life platform at this Christmas party. Now, had I known that, you wouldn't have seen me go. What am I doing at a Christmas party listening to abortion? And there's two big screens where I'm right in the center of them and ultrasounds are going on of a child somewhere around eight weeks, I think it was. And that's about how long I was. So I'm really hyperventilating now. I have got to get out of here. And then I felt this love come over me. I can't even describe it to you that not only allowed me to stay through the remainder of the event and to watch this and to listen to this woman's whose mother ended up choosing life, but this love that was washing around me said, I love you no matter what. That, Lynn says, was God, who she says has given her a certain peace to at least be able to stop living in two. The regret over her decision, though, that's not gone and she doesn't suspect it ever will be. My husband has no children because of that decision, and that wasn't even his child. My second husband and myself, we have no grandchildren because of that decision. We spend Christmas alone with no toys under the tree. There's a lot of stuff that came all at once when that reality finally hit me. In 1965, I was a junior in college, and I got pregnant. This is Betty Guns, our second of four guests, in the larger conversation on what it means to have had an abortion. My boyfriend had bipolar disorder. 1965, nobody knew what that was or how to treat it. He was left to self-medicate with drugs and alcohol. So life was pretty chaotic. I was barely able to take care of myself, obviously. It was not a good setting to bring a child into. He knew somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody who did abortions. My boyfriend and I went to a strip mall parking lot and met a stranger who put us in his car, blindfolded us, and drove us to the place where the person who did abortions was. They gave me whiskey as an anesthetic. When he was finished, I went back to my dorm room and waited. I bled heavily. I got sicker and sicker over the next four days. I was lapsing in and out of consciousness when 
the individuals who helped my boyfriend arrange the abortion told him that he needed to take me out on a country road at night and leave me because it was clear that I was dying and they were going to be in big trouble. Betty's boyfriend did not leave her for dead on a country road. He took her to a hospital where she barely skirted death from organ failure and spent months recovering on a then-new treatment called kidney dialysis. Dialysis was very primitive in 1965. It was a grueling process. While I was still hovering between life and death, two SBI agents, State Bureau of Investigation agents, came to my hospital room to question me. I got kicked out of college. That's the way it was before Roe v. Wade, when you had an abortion. I was a lucky one. Hospitals had sepsis wards, and they were usually full of women who were dying from abortions. Most did. I was lucky. And after all of that, after a painful abortion, after almost dying in a sepsis ward, After losing her education, at least for a time, and after staring prison in the face for the rest of her life. It was still worth it to me because I was able to complete my education, have a career doing work that I loved. It enabled me to be a loving wife, a doting grandmother, a passable mother. And I wouldn't have gotten to do those things if I had not had that abortion. For Betty Guns, strict laws halting clinical abortions, like the one South Carolina now has on its books as of middle August, are going to achieve the opposite and create new experiences just as harrowing as hers, in blindfolded backroom operations that will leave young women dead or severely injured. And that's largely because, she says, banning abortion access will only hurt women who are in the same place that she was when she got pregnant in 1965. And that's the position that women who decide to have abortions are usually in. If a person who's pregnant already has other children and looks around and knows that they can't support these children that they already have, or they can't provide a good life to another child, and also it would take a good life away from their current children, It's an act of conscience to decide to have an abortion, maybe even an act of love. We were stationed in West Berlin And life was just going along, and I just got sick one day. Mary Jo wasn't sick because she was pregnant. That was something else entirely. The doctors couldn't immediately diagnose. Over several weeks after that, I had a lot of testing done with radiation, x-rays, scans. Uh, I'll just also add that I am an RN. They asked me, of course, before the test, are you pregnant? I said no. So I went ahead with the test and then about three weeks later discovered that I was indeed pregnant. This was 1978, not long into Mary Jo's marriage to Bob, 
a young army lieutenant newly stationed at the very front of Cold War politics. And in 1978, abortion was not the topic that it is today, even for religious couples like Mary Jo and Bob. I viewed it as a, as a medical procedure, which was totally yeah, <laughs> skewed. I don't think there was a huge pro-abortion, pro-life movement then. It hadn't really caught fire yet. So in an environment bereft of conversation, family, and trusted spiritual companionship, the young nurse weighed her options. I was very fearful because it would have been during the first four weeks of conception that I had all of this, these x-rays and, and testing done. So, I, of course, I went in to see at the military hospital there, went in to see a GYN doctor and discussed. And he said, yes, the tests were done during a crucial time of development where everything is forming. And there is a risk that you could have something seriously wrong with your baby. I was just terrified. I, I felt very unprepared to take that risk. And Bob, he kind of just, I was so upset and so nervous and so fearful of this that he, he was very just trying to support me. And we made the decision to terminate the pregnancy and had it done in the military hospital. Went home and that began many years of suffering. And not just for her. One of the many things Mary Jo says gets lost in the arguments about abortion is its effect on fathers, especially in relationships that don't end when a pregnancy does. We've been married now almost 49 years. There's no doubt that we love each other, but I think just the heartache and the, the guilt and the shame couldn't help but affect our relationship in a negative way. And so we had to, you know, we had challenges where we had to just fight through those challenges with the Lord's help. For Mary Jo, guilt over a decision she immediately regretted manifested in a decades-long depression. For Bob, guilt was more about what he feels he didn't do as a husband and as a man. I wasn't mature enough yet as a Christian or mature enough as a head of the household. And so I, I asked a lot of questions, is this, is this the right decision? You know, and Mary Jo, as she said, she was very fearful and... Um, at the end of the day, um, I did not provide godly leadership. I let her fear probably take too much weight in the decision-making process. And frankly, I knew it was wrong. I, knew I wasn't comfortable with the decision, but I, I, I uh, said, well, you know, this is Mary Jo, and she's the one that's got to, you know, bear the child and care for it. And so I, you know, I went through a lot of deliberations in my mind. I knew immediately that we'd made the wrong decision too. Before the end of the 1980s, Mary Jo and Bob had sought forgiveness for what they had felt was a serious mistake. It wasn't easy for them. I didn't think I was worthy enough to be forgiven. They accepted forgiveness nevertheless. As Christians, Mary Jo says, she and Bob believe that Christ died specifically for that purpose. If we don't accept his forgiveness and realize that he can forgive us, then we're saying that his death did not provide a way for us to be forgiven. The 
the couple did eventually have children and grandchildren, who Bob says he wants to make sure to counsel to provide that godly leadership that he feels he failed to live up to 45 years ago. No one in my family had ever gone to college. My family are farmers, and my parents didn't want me to go to college. They thought, you know, you go become a secretary down at the range, and you meet the farmer from across the town, and that's what you do. I knew I was made for more than that, and I wasn't ready to give it up. And lastly, we meet Deb Corbin, who as a married 20-something in 1996 had made it off the farm but just far enough to know that now was not the time for something like a baby to come along. Part of the reason we got pregnant is because we weren't sure we could. I had had some health issues off and on. Uh, I'm adopted, so we didn't have a medical history. I have some now because I've, I've sought out my birth parents. But uh, for a number of reasons, we weren't super careful because we didn't think that I was gonna have kids. The irony being that when they later did, they needed fertility treatments. But that would still be three years away when life was more stable. In 1996, Deb and her husband were in a much different place. I think the moment I realized I was pregnant, I knew this, no, this just wasn't it. It wasn't, it wasn't time. I wasn't, I wasn't at all like, woo, yay, or, I mean, we just knew this was not it. We were not ready. Deb didn't think very long about what to do. Her husband was on a job in Vancouver at the time. So she flew there to tell him that she had decided to have an abortion. And I told him, and he never wavered. He wanted what I wanted. I don't think there was any point at which we even considered keeping that pregnancy. I know I would have loved a baby. I know I would have cared for a baby as a mom, and maybe I could have gotten used to it, and maybe it would have worked out perfectly. But it was such a big risk, and I knew that I wasn't that strong at that point. And to have a child for the sake of having a child because I happened to get pregnant just wasn't a good enough reason for me. Please take a moment to recall how this story began with an acknowledgement that the main thing missing from the conversation surrounding abortion is conversation. This is a topic that gets reductive and divisive really fast. But as you've heard so far, abortion is a deeply nuanced conversation. Reasons and decisions made in this space are weighty and consequential and private. And even when the decision to terminate a pregnancy might sound like a straightforward one, it isn't. We were both from broken families. My parents divorced when I was six. His parents had just divorced in his late teens. And we knew what ugliness in a family looked like. Not abuse or anything, but just a broken home. And Neither one of us could see it working out. Deb isn't terribly close with the family she left on the farm. She never even told them she'd been pregnant, much less no longer pregnant. She says she knows they would not have approved. At that time, and, and of course even still, it's not acceptable amongst our ranks, especially with, you know, you're married, you have jobs. Why would you make this choice? You weren't raped, you weren't molested, you weren't whatever. Everyone portrays abortion as a solution to a tragedy. And this wasn't a tragedy for them, but it might have been for me, for us. And although she sought a conversation with her husband about what she had decided to do, Deb says it probably would not have made a difference had he not been on her side. He wasn't going through it. 
It wasn't him. He wasn't going to give up his career. He wasn't going to give up his future and his money and his just achievement. I was never supposed to achieve anything. I wasn't supposed to get a degree. I wasn't supposed to work in the industry. I wasn't supposed to do this. So a big part of it to me was just, this is about me who's already here, not a blob of cells that isn't anything yet. And Deb Corbin, not religious, but a person of what she calls a certain faith, is not fond of the argument that a decision to abort a pregnancy will always come back to haunt. I've never regretted it. And everyone said, oh, you know, there's trauma involved and there's stuff, and maybe there is somewhere, maybe someday I'll go to therapy and realize, but I have not one regret. And my husband and I have discussed it. We don't think at all that we made the wrong decision. We just were not emotionally prepared for it. And it would not have been a good situation to bring a child home into. Some of you listening might wonder, what about adoption, an oft-proposed antidote to abortion? Well, while not many people are against adoption, there is a common criticism of it as an alternative. Adoption in the United States right now is horrifically expensive. At minimum, tens of thousands of dollars. You can only adopt if you can afford that. Who can afford that? And Deb sees the intersection of abortion and adoption from a rare perspective. I am adopted, so I do see. I've been through adoption, I've been through abortion. I understand the difference. I'm really glad that in 1968, when two 15-year-olds got pregnant, that she didn't make that decision. But I wouldn't have known, I wouldn't be here as a sentient being to know whether if she did or not. It wouldn't have mattered. A raft of self-reflections and private conversations go into every decision to abort or keep a pregnancy. And every situation is personal and unique. That's the first layer of common ground. The second layer is far more substantive, because no one, in all the people you've heard from here, or in any other stories I've worked on regarding the topic of abortion, believes that the real answer to the role abortion can or should play in the lives of families should be reduced to a singular law. Deb. It's way more than just about legislation. Bob and Mary Jo. The baby's not the problem, it's all the other things. Well, we need to resolve some of those, all those other problems so that, that a mother can feel as if she can deliver her healthy child and be supported and have hope. My heart does go out to a lot of scared young people or whatever age they are that find themselves in a situation that they don't see any way out. All they see is they have no hope, they have no help, uh, possibly rejection by the people that are supposed to love them. So the issue is bigger than one Supreme Court decision. And of course, Miss Lynn, who remember, said this. I believe what's missing out of the conversation is the individual humanity of whatever the situation is. And how do you bridge the gap? And how do we team together? How do we as a collective society remedy the situation? One side will say, go ahead, make everybody have babies. Nobody wants them anyway. That's not the truth. Let's get our facts right. Let's get our funding. Let's get our churches. Let's everybody rise up and be part of the solution. If we have children that aren't wanted, why is that? Instead of fighting and all this money thrown around wherever I don't know, Use that money to take care of the solutions instead of fight. 
This story is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. A sincere thank you to our guests, Miss Lynn, Deb Corbin, Betty Guns, Mary Jo, and Bob for sharing your experiences in the hope that someone, somewhere, might get a little closer to understanding how complex the topic of abortion actually is. Music featured in this story was composed by Lance Conrad. And thank you for listening. And joining me in studio is Scott Morgan. And Scott, thanks for being here. Good to be here. So, Scott, uh, we just heard that piece from you was extensively reported. Just tell us, what did you want this to be? What prompted you to create this piece? Well, it wasn't so much about what I wanted. It was the women I spoke with wanted to make sure that we were having a conversation. Because for 40 years, we've just had a fight. Mm. There used to be not so much of a conversation around abortion, say, in the 70s. But once we got somewhere into the 80s, things just turned into sharp-pointed sticks and rocks on opposite sides of some aisle somewhere. So we've just been hearing a fight for 40 years, and it's all been turned into a cartoon. The women I spoke with, and one gentleman, they want to make sure that what people know is that this is a much more nuanced conversation. This is not just about slogans and politics and politicians and podiums and propaganda. This is about people making real decisions, people making very consequential decisions that have affected their lives. And it's about, as you heard, how women came to the decisions in very different ways, how some of them have regretted it and how some of them have not regretted it. It's been a major decision. But ultimately, they all believe this is a bigger issue than just one law. They believe this is a bigger thing than just a Supreme Court decision or about who sits on what court. It's about larger society, and it's about the need to be able to support a society that if we're going to encourage families, we need to fix the system. Hmm. We need to actually have a system that supports families after people have children. And no matter where anybody stands on this issue, this is what everybody agreed on, that the system needs to be fixed. We need Mm -hmm. to have something where families are encouraged and women can make the decision to have a baby and raise a family without it destroying their entire lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's something that we we heard a lot of from politicians this this past session where we're asking them, okay, well, you're passing these bills that are more restrictive for folks, essentially making them have these babies. Uh, what are we going to do on the back end here? Are we going to make it easier for folks to adopt? Are you going to have better social services? We have incredibly high infant and maternal mortality rates in this state. What's being done to address that? Because all we're focused on is what's going on before they're born and after they're born. It's Dot, dot, dot. And we heard that from people like Senator Katrina Sheely and others who were opposed to some of these more restrictive laws. Yeah, well, and that's a good question. What are we going to do about Mm -hmm. it? And that's that's kind of what everybody in this story has been asking. What can we do about it? And one of the more common reactions from anti-abortion activists is adoption, not abortion. You ever try to look into adopting a baby? It's, it's like a million dollars. You, you can't do it. Like, who can afford to adopt a baby? Mm-hmm. You know, you, you can't just go and buy one at Walmart. The, mm-hmm. You know, you, you have to go through a lot of process. It's extremely expensive. And this is just something that ultimately comes out to be something that just benefits people who are in a position already to be able to do that. Mm. Which, if you're in a position to do that, you're not necessarily always in the position to have to decide, am I ready to have this baby? Yeah. So... What needs to be addressed are these kinds of things like, okay, well, adoption is fantastic, but we can't just say adoption for some, miniature American flags for others. Mm -hmm. We we can't do that. You know, we we have to actually fix the whole thing. And then you look at, you know, foster care and DSS. I mean, they have children sleeping in offices. I mean, mean, they've been under the gun for a long time now with mandates to improve services over there. Right. And there's been money going over there and it's still not improved yet. And now you're telling me... 
we're going to add more people to this system. Right, mm-hmm. right. And that's that's the big problem. There are kids out there without homes, and there are people who want those kids mm-hmm. who cannot get those kids. And it's this weird, bitter irony that we have come to where you have people who maybe have the means or the ability to have children, and they don't really want to, or they're not ready to, or they're just not necessarily capable of, of raising them, so they feel, versus other people who just would love to be able to go and take some of those kids out of that foster care system. I don't think anybody looks at the foster care system and thinks, wow, this is all working fantastically. Mm -hmm. People do want to actually help, but they can't because the system is in the damn way. Mm -hmm. So this is what everybody in this story is trying to get across, is that this is a much bigger issue than just some law, somebody sitting on a bench, some Supreme Court decision, some side of an aisle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's going to be the big onus on the legislature, especially next session when this law is now in effect. uh, We're going to start seeing immediate results of this law. And it's not like it's going to go away. It's not like this conversation is or the arguments are going to go away. There's still going to be people trying to fix an issue or change it or change it back or adapt it and tweak it or whatever else they're going to do with it. It's not going away. So none of these, Scott, going back to your discussion with these women, none of those decisions were made lightly. Can you no. tell us about what the disconnect between the rhetoric we hear from politicians and the reality of those making those decisions? I mean, uh, it, it all seems to kind of get lost in the jumble when we talk about this national conversation. Well, I would say that what the biggest disconnect is, is that the people who are making the laws are not necessarily people who have to make this decision about abortion or not abortion, Mm -hmm. or they're more comfortable saying I would never have one in the first place. And okay, fine. But, you know, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to people who have this, because what we hear from over the past 40 years in particular are just either activists who are on some narrow platform and they don't have any room for any other perspective. We hear from media jockeys who are trying to be controversial to keep their jobs or, Mm -hmm. or to get audiences or whatever. And we hear from people running for office. And we hear from doctors who are saying, well, this is a scientific this or this is a medical that. And we're not hearing from people who actually have to make these real decisions. So the real disconnect has been we have lost the people. We have lost the humanity. Mm-hmm. And it's something that Ms. Lynn said back in the beginning of the story is what is missing from this conversation is the humanity. Mm-hmm. We're missing talking to real people. So the disconnect is that we have people making these decisions. We have people writing these laws and they're not actually talking to the people who these laws affect. And I don't think it's necessarily just an abortion issue where that happens. Sure. It happens with all kinds of things. But that, as I see it, is the major disconnect here is that Mm -hmm. we're just not listening to actual people having actual experience with this situation. Yeah. And I've seen, I've been in those rooms where there's hours of testimony going on in the House and the Senate and uh, people get three minutes to talk if that, you know, and there's (laughs) limited questions and rebuttals. And a lot of folks are, it's kind of a stacked deck in terms of who's already there and who's from which side. And it is pretty already kind of perfunctory in a sense. So you're not really getting the real stories. You do have some lawmakers sharing stories. I remember Neil Collins from Pickens was talking about how he heard from a woman who was was going through a difficult pregnancy during that downtime last year in between Dobbs coming into effect and then our state law kicking in too. So there was some some weird time before the court got in there and, injuncted, and issued an injunction, I should say. There was about six or seven weeks and some woman he was talking to like, you know, was going through these, you know, sepsis essentially and going through all these issues and until the baby didn't have a heartbeat, right? So then they could finally have an abortion. But it was just this entire harrowing discussion, and it seemed to kind of hit him at the time, not enough so that he changed his vote in any way, but just they do finally hear some of those stories, but it's so few and far between, it seems like, and I'm sure they're going to be hearing more of those going forward. I'm sure. And, 
you know, politics is politics, right? So maybe the gentleman didn't change his mind, not because he wasn't moved, Mm -hmm. but more because, well, you can't. You know, it's something, as a reporter, I'm sure you've heard this too, is that there are people on whatever side of whatever political aisle will say, I actually agree with the other guy, Mm -hmm. but I can't possibly vote for that. Yeah, he'd get kicked out of office. (laughs) Yeah, you know, (laughs) you you get get primary. Yeah, there are priorities right there, right? Yeah, so, I mean, there are political realities that people have to face all the time. And I think this is just, this is such a hot potato Mm -hmm. issue. This is such an easily divisive issue where somebody can come along and say, I'm for this side of it. And everybody goes, ah, well, that guy is perfect. Or, ah, I hate that guy. And all of a sudden, now you're back in that room with the sharp pointed sticks and the rocks Mm -hmm. and nothing is getting done. Because ultimately, and I know this is a bit of a personal perspective, but it just seems, you know, the solution isn't necessarily what people are interested in finding sometimes. The fight is what keeps all of this machination yeah. going. Especially when you hear from people like Scott Huffman, who you talked with from Winthrop University, who right. said there is a lot of consensus over exceptions in certain time frames, but you wouldn't know that based on what you hear from the State House. Right. And that's the point also of this story. Ultimately, that's the biggest point of this story is that there is so much in common with these people. Mm-hmm. Even though their stories are different, their perspectives are different, their politics are different, their decisions and their implications might be a little different, but there is such a shared humanity in this story. Mm. That's what everybody in the story is trying to get across. That's what everybody is trying to say. This is what we need is to have more of that conversation and not these posed arguments. Mm-hmm. Well, Scott, thank you for bringing us that conversation. I know it's 23 minutes long, but like you said, you couldn't break it down. You wanted to keep it in its full entirety to give us that whole perspective. So we appreciate that. And we, uh, we thank you for it. Glad to be here. Thank you. You can find Scott's work and more on SouthCarolinaPublicRadio.org, and we'll continue to bring you coverage of the fallout of the South Carolina Supreme Court's decision to uphold the restrictive six-week abortion ban law well into the future. And for a closer look on how we got here, check out the latest episode of This Week in South Carolina on YouTube.com slash SouthCarolinaETV. Thanks for listening to the pod, folks. Show us your appreciation by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or a voicemail at 803-563-7169. We'll air it during the wind-down section with me and AT. Uh, Give us your hot takes, your questions, and everything in between, 803-563-7169. And you can stay up to date with the latest news on SCETV.org and SouthCarolinaPublicRadio.org. And don't forget to support your local newspapers. For the South Carolina lead, I'm Gavin Jackson. Be well, South Carolina. (laughs) 